You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And boy, is this a very special episode. We are recording, I guess, less than a mile away from each other, which is so crazy. Um, If you guys happen to follow us on Instagram, you would have seen um, our little surprise yesterday that Andrea drove down from Philly to my neck of the woods in uh, Jupiter, Florida with her partner and we all got a chance to meet up my family (laughs) and and Andrea and for the first time in we decided it's been 12 (laughs) years which is nutty um since we've been together in person and um it was such a cool day we actually we met at a a national park near me and um we were canoeing and anyone who knows me is probably laughing right now because i'm the least athletic person in the world can i just say your face when you found out there were no motorboats and we had to hand paddle I was but Andrea, I made it work. So. You were a pro by the end. You really were. I was a pro, yeah. Ethan and I were, we had the communication down pat. We were, you know, steering. Anyway, it was great. Um, but it was so awesome. And honestly, it's been 12 years, but Andrea and I, we speak about, honestly, no exaggeration, at least, no, constantly. We're constantly, yes, constantly. throughout constantly. The, the day, every single day. Um, and it was really cool when we saw each other, it felt like no time had passed yeah yeah Um, absolutely we just just like picked up where we left off and you know it was yeah it was really it was really nice and really refreshing and you know so great to meet the little kiddos and all the animals and my fur babies andrea was on the floor rolling around my driveway within five seconds my three (laughs) dogs came barreling out and were attacking her um and it was really cool and just i want to wrap this up obviously i know we have to get to the meat of the episode but so i i'm a year older than andrea and i i graduated stony brook in 2008 we Mm -hmm. were trying to kind of reconstruct the timeline and i hung around for a bit to do my my, my master's in public health at Stony. So the last time that we would have seen each other would have been like 2009? 2009, yeah, because then I graduated and I moved to the city for grad school. And by the time you moved to the city to go to CUNY, I was right. out in New Jersey, you know, and then you moved to Florida. Yeah. Yeah. Just so crazy. But anyhow, yeah. It's awesome, and um, I'm so sad that you're leaving tomorrow. But uh, I know, yeah. We ho- hopefully COVID, um, you know, is no longer an issue <laughs> in the somewhat near future, which obviously we're going to yes. talk about a little bit on this episode. Um, and that, and you know, these trips will be more frequent. But anyway, yep, absolutely. So let's recap briefly. Last week we talked about essential oils. And we dug into the science behind essential oils. We know they're super, super common, billion dollar, multi-billion dollar industry. Um, We actually got quite a few angry messages from people who (laughs) use essential oils and swear by them. Um, I think one of our main takeaways is that, you know, it's one thing to enjoy the smells. Um, You know, I I admit it, I I actually, I I love scents, you know, I, I like them, but it's another thing to think that they're actual um, you know, evidence-based medicinal applications. So right, do you, right. you Andrea, I know you, you know, you talked a lot about some of the potential harms to, yeah. to humans, to children, to pets. Do you want to recap anything? Yeah. I mean, you know, there, there's some mixed evidence that some of these essential oils can help with things related to uh, psychological conditions like anxiety and whatnot. But in terms of curing illness or curing medical issues, um, there's really no evidence behind that. And it's something to keep in mind because since, since they're not regulated for safety or composition or concentration of these, we want to be careful that, you know, we're not inhaling them. We're not ingesting them. These certainly haven't been tested for things like toxicity. Men 
many of them do have really um, dangerous implications for your pets as well. So, you know, if you are someone that does use essential oils, whether it be, you know, because they, they, they do make you feel better or because you enjoy the scents like Jess does, um, you know, we encourage you to tune in to kind of learn, you know, some of the, you know, um, considerations when, when using those in your day-to-day lives. Right. And, and, you know, you did a really good job walking through the specific types of essential oils that come with some specific, um, risks again for, you know, for pets and young children. So definitely tune into that. But today we're going to tackle, um, a COVID related topic. We're back to COVID. This is something that is hugely important. We're going to talk about the rollout of COVID-19 vaccines. So we're going to talk a little bit about, um, the manufacturing, of the vaccines, distribution, um, you know, some barriers to, uh, to deployment. We are, just to be totally transparent, obviously, Andrea and I are based in the U.S. So a lot of what we post tends to be um, specific to this country, but we are also going to talk about some of the challenges globally, since we recognize that this, of course, is a global health emergency. Um, so we're going to do our best to talk about that. And just one quick aside before we dive in, um, we had to actually postpone our original recording uh, because I had a stomach bug. And, uh, and so today we are, it's a Sunday. And so I'm recording from home. Andrea is recording from the hotel. So apologies if the audio quality is, is maybe not as good as it usually is. So just wanted to give that little disclaimer. So <laughs> just to set the stage here, um, I was looking at the current, um, you know, the total number of cases across the world. And here in the U S we're, we're leading with the total, um, Total case count of over 28 million, followed by India, Brazil, Russia, and the UK. And um, we can post a link, of course, to the tracker that, um, you know, it it updates with the total number of cases, new cases, deaths, um, total recovered, and so on. But we do want to recognize, or at least acknowledge that, um, you know, in some countries, there are limitations to testing. Um, There are some problems with reporting. So you know, these case counts are our best estimates, but it doesn't mean that they reflect, you know, 100% accuracy. So just want to be totally transparent about that. So Andrea, with that in mind, can you give us an update on where we stand with vaccine administration? So, you know, currently we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the U.S. and then we'll kind of expand that globally. So in the U.S., one of the plans for the Biden-Harris administration was to get to 100 million doses within the first 100 days of the new administration. And to hit that goal, you needed to hit about a million doses per day. Um, Many experts in the field have actually said in order to curb the pandemic in a reasonable manner, um, particularly with the new variants in mind, we actually had to increase that rate. And so right now, as of February 21st, the average rate uh, in the U.S. is about 1.7 million doses per day, which is very impressive. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very encouraged by these numbers. I actually expect them to probably tick up a little bit um, based on some of the things we're going to discuss Um, But as of right now, 61.3 million um, people in the U.S. have received at least a single dose. Um, When you break that down further, 42.8 million have received a single dose of a vaccine and 17.9 have received two doses. So 17.9 million people in the U.S. are fully vaccinated. So in the U.S., the two that we have authorized are the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. These are both two-dose regimens. Um, So that means around 12% of the U.S. population have received a single dose and about 5% of the U.S. population are fully vaccinated. Um, And that's using a baseline of about 328 million people in the U.S. When we talk globally, um, right now there are 202 million doses that have been administered across the world. And this is in 88 countries. So with a global population of about 7.8 billion people, um, that's about 2.5% of the world. So, you know, we clearly see that there is disparity. Um, Currently, 130 countries around the world have not received a single dose of any vaccine. And I think it bears mentioning that there are other vaccines used elsewhere outside of the U.S. and we are going to um, discuss those. Um, but, But currently, when we sit with these 202 million doses, 
10 countries around the world are responsible for 75% of those vaccines that are administered globally. Um, and the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, has, has voiced a lot of concern about this. He stated that the G20 should create a task force to address vaccine equity. So just a quick refresher, the G20 is an international forum for governments and central bank governors from 19 countries around the world in the EU. And this includes, um, you know, countries such as the US, UK, France, Canada, Germany, Australia, the EU, Argentina, and, and many others, of course. Um, so the concern is, of, of course, that because 10 countries are responsible for the vast majority of these vaccines, you know, and, and some of those are US, Israel, Canada, United Arab Emirates, France, and some others, um, but less than 1% of the vaccines available have been administered in the 32 countries that are facing the most severe humanitarian crises. So this is a big concern about vaccine equity in a global pandemic. We simply can't focus on single countries here because, of course, this, this illness is spreading around the world. Right. So there is a fantastic article um, that was published in The Lancet on February 12th. It's called Challenges in Ensuring Global Access to COVID-19 Vaccines, Production, Affordability, Allocation, and Deployment. And we're definitely going to link to that on our website. Um, they do a really good job walking through where the world stands and they break things out into these four dimensions. And again, that's development and production, um, allocation, affordability, and deployment. Um, so as of February 3rd, 2021, there were 289 experimental COVID-19 vaccines in development. 66 of which were in different phases of clinical testing, including 20 in phase three. But only five of these 66 vaccines, um, those developed by AstraZeneca in partnership with Oxford University, uh, BioNTech with Pfizer, Gamaleya, that's the um, Moscow-based uh, Institute, uh, Moderna and Sinopharm in partnership with the Beijing Institute have been authorized by regulatory authorities or who. There are another five from China, India, Kazakhstan and Russia that have received approval um, or have been authorized for emergency use by other regulatory agencies. Um, some of the organizations developing these vaccines have submitted documentation to WHO for uh, emergency use listing or pre-qualification, but uh, these are still under review. There are additional vaccines from Novavax and Johnson & Johnson that we are hopeful um, to be, mm -hmm. we're ex they're expected to be authorized um, on the basis of positive interim phase three results. And can I just jump in yeah, there, jump Jess? In, um, so the J&J, &J, so the Janssen or Janssen, I guess, depending on who you talk to, um, that that FDA review is actually this week on the 26th. So we obviously oh will be posting updates on, on how that plays out. Right. And, you know, it's, it's incredible, Andrew, we've talked about this. M several of the vaccines show very high levels of efficacy, you know, more than 70% efficacy in clinical trials. Um, but it's worth noting that not all developers have published uh, their results. But most of the authorized vaccines have been shown to provide strong protection against hospitalizations, uh, you know, severe cases of COVID and deaths due to COVID-19. So we really, you know, we definitely encourage you to check that out, um, the, the link to the Lancet article that we'll post. Um, they also have this really great infographic that breaks out the different vaccines in development and across these four dimensions. And they have this color-coded system, um, green, yellow, red, sort of indicating um, you know, how far along we are with regard to development and production, affordability, allocation, and deployment. And it's interesting that not a single one of these you know, manufacturers, there's no green across the board, right? Mm -hmm. There are, there are problems in at least one of these different dimensions of vaccine rollout. Um, just a couple of things I wanted to point out. And again, we will post this visual, uh, this uh, infographic on our website. And honestly, probably we'll do a post on this at some point. <laughs> yes. um, this is just such an awesome one. But just wanted to comment on the differences in affordability, because we did get a lot of questions on the, the cost of the different vaccines. 
So right. they range from, and um, cost is in US dollars per course, and they range from $5, again, five US dollars per course, um, the lowest being, uh, again, $5 for the AstraZeneca uh, with Oxford University vaccine, all the way up to $62. And that's for the um, Sinopharm vaccines. I guess there are two different mm -hmm. Sinopharm vaccines. You would know better than I do, Andrea, one with the Beijing Institute and one with the Wuhan in Institute. So definitely a big range in affordability. Um, and, you know, there are differences. And again, you could look at this differences in efficacy. Um, there are differences in estimated production capacity for 2021. Um, there are differences in the number of doses required, um, and of course, different storage requirements. And we are going to talk about some of those, um, those barriers. And, yeah. you know, if we could just, sorry, <laughs> the last thing I'll say, you know, here in the U.S., obviously, you know, we're a high income country. I, I don't know if people think, you know, people who are around the world think that things have just been rolling out really smoothly. It has not been a smooth <laughs> rollout. Um, things vary significantly by state. You know, the, the right now, you know, Andrew, we were talking about this here where I'm located in Palm Beach County, Florida. Um, the first group to be vaccinated was 65 and older. And where you are, what what was the first group? Oh, yeah. So, so... I, I think I was actually talking about Connecticut where my oh, stepdad sorry. is. So he's 74 and they only just opened up, you know, the, the sign up list for people under 75 before it was, you know, priority healthcare workers and, and people over 75. And so, you know, he's, he's right on that cusp and, you know, hasn't been able to get in line to, to get a vaccine yet. Right. So I guess my, my point is that there's total, oops, sorry, if you hear my daughter in the background, lots of variation across states, even at the county, local level. Yeah. Um, there are Facebook support groups set up for people trying to help the elderly get signed up, you know, who might not be technologically savvy and not able to, to actually sign up um, for the vaccine. So, you know, it's not all rainbows and butterflies here, just to be clear. And I, you know, I, I say that with the understanding that there are so many countries that don't even have any access to the vaccines. Right. Just wanted to provide that context. Yeah, yeah. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. So let's quickly jump in and talk about kind of which vaccines are being used where. Um, and we can post the link to the vaccine tracker. So New York Times does a really good job of updating, um, you know, uh, which countries have recently authorized or approved new vaccines. Um, they have a really great status update of um, where different vaccines sit in the development phase and phase, phase clinical trials and, and whatnot. So the, the Pfizer BioNTech is approved, full approval uh, in Bahrain, New Zealand, Saudi Arabia, Switzerland, and has emergency use authorization in a variety of countries, including the US, UK, United Arab Emirates, uh, Costa Rica, Ecuador, the EU, Israel, um, Oman, Panama, and I'm not going to list them all, but there's a long list. Um, it's also been given emergency use validation from the WHO, as Jess just said. Um, the Moderna, which is also an mRNA vaccine, is approved in Switzerland and is um, authorized for emergency use in Canada, the EU, um, Israel, UK, United States, um, Singapore, and some other countries. Gamaleya's Sputnik 5, aka the GAM COVID vac, 
um, is authorized for early use in Russia and emergency use in a variety of countries, including Iran, Kazakhstan, Argentina, Algeria, um, Belarus, Guinea, Mongolia, and many others. Sinopharm, which is one of the Chinese inactivated viral vaccines, is approved for use in Bahrain, China, United Arab Emirates, and emergency use in Cambodia, Egypt, Hungary, Iraq, Jordan, Nepal, Pakistan, and Peru, and limited use for Serbia and the Seychelles. Um, Sinovac, which is another inactivated um, viral vaccine developed in China, is approved for use in China, emergency use in Azerbaijan, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Indonesia, Laos, Mexico, Turkey, and Uruguay. Um, CanSino, which is uh, another Chinese vaccine, has limited use in China and emergency use in Mexico and Pakistan. Um, the Oxford AstraZeneca has also emergency use validation from the WHO and is approved, authorized for emergency use in a variety of countries, including the UK, of course, um, Mexico, Algeria, Australia, Bangladesh, uh, Brazil, and, and many others. And then the last one that we'll talk really quickly about is Barat Biotech, and that is uh, the Covaxin vaccine, and that is authorized for emergency use in India. So we have quite a few countries that kind of fall under these umbrellas that have authorized, have reviewed, um, and are utilizing these vaccines. But of course, we're still lacking across a very diverse array of countries. So Andrea, I think when people think about, you know, vaccine development and, and manufacturing, they think that it's, you know, the, maybe the biggest holdup is, is the money, right? The, the financing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, what's the problem? The, the, these labs can produce the vaccine and then you just deploy them to the population. Right. Obviously, it's a lot more complicated than that. So can you kind of walk us through vaccine manufacturing a bit? Yeah. And I'm going to simplify this quite a bit. Um, and I guess before I want to, before I start, you know, every step of this process has many, many different checkpoints for quality control, for integrity. Um, they all have their different supply chains for every step of the process. And, you know, in order to adhere to, you know, the stringency to ensure that, you know, these vaccines are manufactured properly, are inspected properly, are packaged properly, are shipped properly, you know, there's so many checkpoints that are involved in it. Requires a phenomenal amount of coordination on so many different levels. Um, but typically, if you're talking about a standard vaccine process to manufacture, so after the vaccine has been developed and engineered and is ready to scale up processing, takes between 12 and 36 months to adequately manufacture a vaccine. And so we're trying to compress this based on the urgency. And so we want to make sure that we don't you know, skip any checkpoints. Um, but there's many different steps in this vaccine development process. So the first is you know, obviously all of the preclinical research and development, which has been done, you know, we have the targets for the vaccines. We know how they're going to be manufactured. We have essentially the recipe for them. Um, but then you have to actually start making it right. And so when you're doing these things in the lab, you're typically doing this on a very small scale. But when you talk about large scale vaccine manufacturing, you have to magnify how much of these things that you're going to do. All of these processes have to be scaled up and that's both for throughput, but it's also volume. So if you're using equipment that is geared for small scale kind of bench manufacturing, as we say, then you need equipment that can handle the capacity that's needed. So these are all different steps that there are potential bottlenecks. So the first is obviously your raw material supply, right? Receiving raw material. So these are all the little individual components that are going to make all the different components that are required to the vaccine. Um, then, of course, you have to manufacture the active ingredients. Um, and so those would be like the RNAs and the lipid nanoparticles for the, the RNA vaccines. Um, if you're talking about an inactivated virus, then you're growing lots of virus in cells in the lab. And that takes a long time. 
Um, and then of course you have to do things like formulation. So, you know, we know that it's not just little pieces of RNA, right? There are buffers in there. There are the lipid nanoparticles. Everything has to be very precise. Everything has to be mixed at certain ratios, at certain temperatures, at certain viscosities. Um, then you have the filling. So you actually have to fill, you know, these vials, right? And in order to fill the vials, you need glass and to make glass, you need mined sand and, you know, and you need all these different, you know, injection equipment and microfluidics devices and things like that. And then of course, you have to package, you have to do lot inspection, you have to do quality control, you have to release the individual lots. Um, then you have to ship them, you know, you have to distribute them around the world. Um, and then ultimately you have to store them, right? So um, medical facilities and, you know, local hubs have to have storage capacity. And then you have to do local distribution. And then once they're distributed, you have to actually administer them. So you need personnel that are available to actually give vaccines and put vaccines in people's arms. And so it's a very multifaceted process. So the question that we get so often, and this is our herd from the herd is, well, can't other companies just help manufacture these vaccines to scale up? And, you know, there are so many different levels of bottlenecks and roadblocks. And there are, you know, as I mentioned, there's manufacturing bottlenecks, there's shipment bottlenecks, there are administration bottlenecks, there are storage bottlenecks. And so, you know, all of these different levels have all of these different potential bottlenecks. And it's not quite as simple as, you know, just send the recipe to another company that's not currently making a vaccine. Right. Um, so, so maybe just to set the stage for the, for the bottleneck conversation. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, I know we wanted to talk about a couple of different bottlenecks. Um, yes. We know that, you know, RNA science has been developing for, for decades now, right? We've, we've talked about this on, on past epi- episodes, but this is the, the first time that we've needed to make billions of doses immediately, right? Mm-hmm. In, in light of a global pandemic. Um, so there were ingredients for these mRNA vaccines that were stockpiled in advance of FDA approval, and, and those will be enough to cover the first billion doses or so. But after that, these bottlenecks are going to emerge. So um, we've already seen these stumbles in, in delivery uh, across, I mean, right now we could talk about two types of vaccine, right? So Pfizer, we know um, they were the maker of the first RNA vaccine to be approved. They they cut its 2020, sorry, they cut their 2020 production forecast um, from the original 100 million to 50 million doses, and then AstraZeneca, um, they have the adenovirus vaccine in, in the UK. They lowered it, their production targets from 30 million vials to 4 million vials. And several other companies um, are expected to release the results of their vaccine trials soon and seek approval for them. And we have no clue you know, what their manufacturing ske- schedules will be like. Um, will be, sorry. <laughs> and so basically, you know, Andrea, I know you, you just walked us through the manufacturing of all these different types of vaccines. It's extremely complex. It involves multiple ingredients, multiple steps, multiple layers, um, each of which can face numerous bottlenecks. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I mean, the hope is that these different manufacturers, you know, or at least the, the businesses across the vaccine supply chain, um, you know, should work together. Um, it would be great if we could harness companies and scientists everywhere to, to unleash our collective, you know, ability and supercharge production to vaccinate the world. But that's not as easy as it sounds. Yeah, so, yeah. Andrew, do you want to kick things off? Um about the different specific types of bottlenecks. Yeah. Yeah. So let me talk a little bit about kind of manufacturing bottlenecks first. So we're going to use the RNA vaccine process um, in a simplified format as, as an example, but obviously every vaccine technology has a slightly different process depending on what the actual component of the vaccine is. So for an RNA virus, there's kind of six broad steps and this is very simplified. Um, so the first is we have to make a template for that RNA. So we need that sequence. Um, we actually do that. We make 
pieces of DNA that because DNA is very stable, um, we're able to produce a stretch of DNA that's basically the template for RNA. So if you listen to our other episodes, we talked about that central dogma, DNA goes to RNA goes to protein. And so in the lab, it's easy to make RNA if we make DNA first um, as, a, as a template for it. Um, so that DNA is going to have the sequence that we need to actually convert into RNA in step two. And in order to make lots of DNA, we use a technology called plasmid technology, which is done in bacterial cells. So we basically engineer bacteria to produce lots of, um, of the sequence of DNA that we need. And, and this is actually very similar to the technology we use to make insulin, if you ever listen to our GMO episodes. But um, so, so we make this DNA first. Then the next step is we have to produce the RNA from that DNA. And so we use a variety of different enzymes. Um, so enzymes are proteins that actually catalyze a reaction. Um, and so these are enzymes such as things called polymerases. So polymerases synthesize polymers. So they're making RNA. Um, we also have other enzymes that actually have to stabilize RNA. Um, so it's not as simple as just like a series of sequences. There's things that cap the RNA that protect it from degradation. We actually um, change the sequence of RNA to make it a little bit more stable and to ensure that it doesn't get degraded as soon as it gets into our bodies. Um, but all of these enzymes are required. And, um, and these, of course, can be in short supply. So the next step is, again, once we have the RNA, we also have to make those lipids. So the, the lipid nanoparticles are these four different lipids, um, two of which overlap with the Pfizer, uh, Pfizer BioNTech and the Moderna vaccine, and two are unique in each. Um, but we have to manufacture these lipids. And, and some of these are common, like cholesterol, that's in both. But some of them are not, and they're proprietary, and only certain companies have patents and the formulas for them. And you know, so that can be a limiting factor as well. And the next step is you have these lipids, you have your RNAs, you have to actually combine them into the proper formulation. And this is actually a really, really big rate limiting step. And I'll talk to talk about that in, in a second. Um, so once you have those combinations, that formulation of the RNA and the lipids, you have to obviously mix that with your buffers, the, the saline, the sucrose, all the other components in the virus that helps or in the vaccine that stabilize and buffer it, you know, adjust the pH. And then, and then we have to fill, you know, and package those. And then of course there's quality control steps along that whole process. And then finally, you know, the vials are filled. They have to be put into trays, into packages, into crates, and then physically shipped. So that's kind of the, the broad process. Um, and so step one and two can be generally, you know, scaled up appropriately, as long as you have the, the proper instrumentation, the proper equipment, um, step three can, you know, be conducted. So step three is the lipid formulation, the lipid manufacturing that can be done concurrently with step one and two, because the, the RNA and the lipids don't need to, you know, be involved with each other until step four. Um, but step four is really a rate limiting step. And this needs to be super precise, um, specific amounts of each lipid. So there's four different lipids um, because they have different properties. We have to make sure that they assemble properly. So we have to have the right proportions of each. We also have specific amounts of RNA. So we know that the Pfizer vaccine uses 30 micrograms. The Moderna uses 100 micrograms. So we're using these tiny, precise volumes and amounts of these different components. So we're using these microfluidic devices to dispense these and to mix them. And we have to control things like temperature and volume and flow rate. And this is very complicated. And these have very specific equipment required to do this. So different labs around the world don't have this equipment. It's not as easy as saying, oh, give them the recipe and they can just make it. It's it's a very unique and precise technology that until recently we were not doing across the world with, you know, vaccine manufacturing companies. And, and aside from all that, you know, we have all of these different specific ingredients for each of the manufacturing steps and all of them have their own supply chains for each of the ingredients, plus equipment, plus consumables, things like pipette tips, things like tubes, things like the glass vials. And all of these things are needed to carry out these steps. So, you know, we have a shortage of something like silly as mined sand, which is the raw material to make glass for the vaccine vials. So, you know, even at the level of raw materials, we have bottlenecks. 
Um, Andrew, can there's I just a really just for sure. one sec, because I think mm-hmm. that there's this perception that there's somehow like selfishness on on the part of these manufacturers, and that the the issue is that there's this proprietary information or proprietary formula formulations for these vaccines, and that's why you know that right. that's why these companies aren't working together and you know ramping up production. But based on everything that you just described that's not really, you know, that, 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 that's not the primary issue at least. Correct. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, and the thing is, is even if these companies had all the equipment available and they had decontaminated their facilities from whatever vaccine they were making previously, that all takes time too. But on top of that, there's a finite amount of raw materials. So just adding more facilities isn't going to increase the amount of raw materials. You're just redistributing the same amount and that is not going to increase your throughput. Um, there's a really good blog by uh, a gentleman named Jonas Newbert on supply chain and challenges specifically for the RNA vaccines. Um, he's a PhD level automation engineer at a biotech company. So he's really well-versed in large scale automation and manufacturing. We will link to that as well. It's very, very detailed. If you really want to dig into like the nitty gritty behind every single ingredient and supply chain and all of that. Um, but, but yes, you know, we have bottlenecks for raw materials. We have bottlenecks for the the glass. We have bottlenecks for consumables that we need to actually do these things like pipette tips and tubing and all and vials and all this sort of stuff. And and on top of that, these vaccines are hard to make, as I mentioned. You know, there aren't other companies that have all the supplies and equipment or manpower at the ready. And we're going to talk about personnel in a little bit. But, um, you know, and as I mentioned, there aren't unlimited suppliers. These lipid nanoparticles are a very specific thing by done by a very select group of companies. And, you know, these companies, Moderna, Pfizer, BioNTech, have probably already, you know, grabbed the full capacity of all these companies that manufacture these lipids. You know, they're not manufacturing the lipids, they're formulating the lipids. But there are some companies who are pitching in and they're not pitching in at the level of kind of the early stage manufacturing, but predominantly for what we call the fill and finish phases. So those are bottling, packaging, and then sending back to, you know, BioNTech or Pfizer or whatever. So um, there, there's a variety of them, but Sanofi, for example, um, their vaccine was actually set back. Um, they didn't have very potent phase two data. They're starting a phase two B um, trial this month, but they've committed to manufacturing manufacturing 125 million doses at their facility in France for Pfizer BioNTech. And this is going to be mostly bottling and packaging. Um, But that's great. You know, they're working together to see where they can help and what they have the facilities to do. Novartis has committed their Switzerland location for fill and finish for BioNTech as well. Um, They've committed to be ready to do this by Q2 of this year. Um, And and it's projected that they can enable the increase in production from 1.3 billion doses to 2 2 billion doses for the year 2021. Um, And on top of that, BioNTech has actually announced 13 additional manufacturing partners in Europe to expand the fill and finish and some of the early phase manufacturing. So, you know, they are helping where they can, but of course, all of these companies don't necessarily even have the capabilities to do what Pfizer, Moderna, BioNTech, et cetera, are doing. Right. And that also leads into maybe the next bottleneck we should talk about, Mm -hmm. which is personnel, right? Personnel shortages. That's huge. And you have these personnel shortages at different, you know, parts of the um, production chain or or deployment chain. So, you know, the actual, the vaccine manufacturing companies themselves, um, you know, Andrea, I think you noted that there are at least 5,000 vacancies and companies are, you know, desperate and and offering sign-on bonuses to try to incentivize people to come on board. Um, You mentioned just before that healthcare workers, you know, we actually need the people to to administer the vaccines to people. Um, Here here in the U.S., we're actually um, trying to get creative and, and expand uh, you know, who's actually administering vaccines to to other uh, types of healthcare workers who may not typically do so. So I think dentists, I, I know there were others, uh, but basically there yeah. are thousands of vacancies. Um, so that that's another very big issue. Um, Andrea, yeah. something that you've talked a lot about in the past, and maybe you can fill in some details here, but transport, 
you know, that that's that's another issue um, in the infographic that we'll post. We talk about well, you'll you'll see the different temperature storage requirements and they vary, of course, you know, by the different um, across the different vaccines. Uh, but that's been a really big issue, right? The refrigeration mm-hmm. requirement. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, the transport supply chain is it obviously involves, you know, transit to point of care, but it also requires transit from the manufacturing facilities to regional distribution centers to local distribution centers. And, you know, on top of needing the physical equipment, you also have personnel, right? You have drivers, you have, you know, pilots, you have all sorts of people involved in this process. Um, You know, even when we look at something like Pfizer, their Kalamazoo, Michigan facility is only producing vaccine for United States. Every other country that gets Pfizer vaccine is getting it from their Belgium facility. Um, Interestingly, Pfizer is actually generally shipping directly to point of care, um, whereas Moderna is actually using intermediary shipping companies like FedEx and UPS and things like that. And that's that's actually due to um, the historical agreement where Moderna was using Operation Warp Speed um, to to assist. They're a much smaller company, so that makes sense. Uh, whereas Pfizer is obviously a much larger global company and they have a little bit more reach themselves. But, uh, you know, even aside from the physical transport, you also have storage challenges once they get to the country that they're getting. To So, you know, Pfizer in particular, um, you know, needs to be stored in ultra cold freezers. So minus 80 freezers and access to those freezers varies considerably around the world. And so supply chain and distribution is going to be a huge challenge. As an example, Peru, the entire country is estimated to have 30 um, cryo freezers, which is less than just the number of those at Pfizer's Michigan site. Um, and so, or, or in their, um, what do they call it? Their freezer farm, um, just that part of their site. And so, you know, there are challenges even with these very efficacious vaccines when we consider how they're going to get around the world. And, and that's why it's great that, that we actually do have other options that don't have as stringent storage requirements, that they can be stored in a regular refrigerator. They are more shelf stable. Um, and that's going to help address some of these underserved areas, underserved countries to overcome some of these bottlenecks. And as just mentioned, this, this infographic that she summarized, you know, you notice that there are some that have really substantial deployment and storage bottlenecks that is not going to be feasible for certain countries to utilize those vaccines and they'll have to use a different option. Well, so this was uh, pretty depressing, <laughs> you know, just kind of learning about all the different, ch- not depressing, but obviously there are so many challenges, right? Yeah. So, so maybe we can shift gears and talk about how how are we addressing these challenges? And mm-hmm. you know, again, we're based in the U.S., so we're we're going to start with how we're addressing these challenges in the U.S. So, yeah, yeah. Um, President Biden has been very bo- vocal about his plans to expand vaccine distribution and administration. Uh, you know, our capacity to distribute and administer vaccines. So, um, to start, just starting with expanding the vaccine supply. Um, the Biden-Harris administration will increase uh, overall weekly vaccine supply to states, tribes, and territories to 10.5 million doses nationwide beginning this week. Um, That's a 22% increase since taking office on January 20th. And the administration is committing to maintaining this as the minimum supply level for the next three weeks. Um, and again, there's going to be this ongoing, uh, you know, working with manufacturers in their efforts to ramp up supply. And we're going to talk about um, some of the ways that they're hoping to do that as well. Uh, also worth mentioning that we've launched the first phase of the federal retail pharmacy program for COVID vaccination. So again, part of the uh, administration's efforts to increase access access to COVID vaccines starting on February 11th. Those eligible for the vaccine um, have the opportunity to be vaccinated at select pharmacies across the country through the Federal Retail Pharmacy Program for COVID vaccination. This is a a public-private partnership with 21 national pharmacy partners and networks of independent pharmacies representing over 40,000 pharmacy locations nationwide. Um, And we can post that list 
um, mm-hmm. on the website. And it's, you know, it's a key component of the administration's national strategy to expand equitable access to vaccines. I do want to note just one thing, and this is a total aside. Um, and I'm actually chuckling over here because Andrea, <laughs> Andrea and, um, and others have brought to, to my attention that I guess I talk a lot about my husband, Ethan, but <laughs> he, he is an emergency doctor and, you know, he's been in my life for over a decade. So yeah, I guess um, <laughs> I talk about him a lot, but he, he, he mentioned um, that he's had so many patients come to the ER, basically saying that they've been unable to fill their their um, prescriptions for, you know, for other drugs. Now I'm not talking about the the COVID vaccine and that's sort of, um, you know, something that I guess that we didn't expect, you know, uh, another, uh, what am I looking for? Not side effect, but another um, consequence. Consequence, thank you. Um, (laughs) Consequence of the, I mean, it's fantastic. I'm not diminishing the importance of this. I just want people to be mindful of some of the other, um, you know, impacts of this. But overall, it it is, you know, another really key piece um, of expanding distribution and administration. Um, Andrew, do you want to talk about increasing reimbursements to states? Sure, yeah. So, so, so um, another component of the, the Biden-Harris plan for the national COVID-19 strategy is ensuring that states, tribes, and territories um, have the resources they need to kind of combat that. So um, this, is, this is part of the FEMA plan. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about the Defense Production Act, but Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, um, is actually going to fully reimburse states for the cost of um, National Guard personnel and emergency costs associated with the pandemic, but they're actually going to, and this was um, as of February 11th, that they're going to retroactively reimburse states for FEMA eligible services like masks, gloves, emergency feeding actions, sheltering at-risk populations, and mobilizing the National Guard. And this is actually going to be backdated to the beginning of the pandemic all the way to January 2020. Um, So this is going to, you know, improve the ability of states to continue to implement mitigation and and vaccination efforts. So should we talk about, yep, sorry, go on. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, before we get into the Defense Production Act, um, one more thing. So as of February 11th, the uh, um, Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Defense have agreed or committed to purchase an additional 100 million doses each from both Pfizer and Moderna. So that would um, uh, bring the total vaccine purchased by the U.S. government to 600 million doses. So that's enough for 300 million people. Um, And that's based on 328 million people estimated population. So that gives us about 91% of the population will have access to vaccines. Um, They've committed to uh, delivering those doses uh, in regular increments through the end of July, 2021. So the goal is still to get the population vaccinated by the end of the summer. Um, And so that will, will get us to that upper limit of herd immunity threshold, at least here in the U.S. Um, We are going to talk a little bit more about international and global, um, you know, plans as well in a minute. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, and you know, Andrea, you you mentioned what um, you know what what FEMA's doing. You know, act mm-hmm. uh, activation of the Defense Production Act (DPA). So let's just talk yep. briefly about that, um, uh, just to round out the conversation about what's going on in the U.S. And then certainly we should turn our attention, um, you know, to, to to the world, to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so DPA is a wartime production law that. Uh, confers upon the president a broad set of authorities to influence domestic industry 
in the interest of national defense. So it was enacted um, in 1950 during the Korean War to create a means for the government to, to require private companies to meet the country's military needs. So it was modeled after similar World War II era statutes, which gave the president enormous powers to direct um, private industry to meet that national emergency, um, under which, for example, the Ford Motor Company made nearly 300,000 vehicles and airplanes. And gradually, Congress has expanded the DPA's definition of national defense beyond military application um, to include crises resulting from natural disasters, terrorist attacks, and other national emergencies. And so um, the, the pandemic falls, um, you know, falls under this. So, um, Andrew, do you want to talk briefly about how the Biden administration? Sure. Okay. Yeah. So, so they have kind of three major plans. So the first is obviously to identify and address shortfalls in the supply chain. So obviously there are many different supply chains involved in this whole process, um, both for mitigation and for vaccination. So far they've identified 12 major gaps that include things like masks and PPE like gloves, as well as testing swabs. So the goal is to address and close those gaps. Um, the next is really to expand the strategic national stockpile, and that is a national reserve of emergency medical supplies. So we found out, obviously, that those were pretty much depleted at the start of the pandemic here in the U.S., which which was a huge challenge in the beginning. Um, it still is a little bit of a challenge, but you know there are medical personnel wearing garbage bags and reusing masks, and and so the goal is to expand that stockpile of medical supplies um, for, for now and for future. Um, and then of course, to expand the supply of vaccinated re vaccination related equipment. And that includes all sorts of equipment required for the supply chain, for manufacturing, for deployment and for administration. And that actually includes some little niche in um, items like low dead space syringes. And those are really good for extracting that sixth dose out of the Pfizer vial. Um, so of course, these are going to help address a lot of the challenges that um, companies as well as states are experiencing with regard to uh, addressing the pandemic. Right. And obviously there's so much we could say about this, but just briefly we'll say, you know, how does this work? Um, there are basically, there are some incentives for businesses under DPA, including financial incentives and assistance, um, such as direct loans and loan guarantees, as well as limitations on liability. Uh, but all that being said, some people feel that the administration should actually go a step further um, and create a coordinating council of relevant companies uh, working together for the for the public good, um, as well as explicitly state that deep coordination uh, among industry players won't trigger antitrust investigations. Um, so to be determined, uh, you know, what what else happens in the US. So, um, yeah. Andrew, did you want to give us some good news? Yeah. So so right now, demand is currently higher than supply. You know, we totally get that. It's been very frustrating, even here in the US, where we actually do have quite a bit of vaccine vaccine available compared to many other countries. Um, you know, we personally have been able to get vaccines for ourselves. Um, Justice's husband, obviously, he's emergency physician. He he was able to fortunately get that in her mom as well was able to get that because she qualified under the age umbrella. Um, you know, my family, um, you know, hasn't been able to get any doses at all. Uh, my mom is a, a public school teacher. My stepdad is 74. Um, you know, so we are all waiting around the country. Um, you know, experts, um, including Dr. Tony Fauci, have projected that in the U.S. at least, supply will start to exceed demand by late spring and early summer. And so that will, um, you know, enable more more, more equitable access, um, you know, around the country. Now there are initiatives in place to address the global demand as well. And that includes, uh, coalitions between the WHO, between the UN, as we previously discussed, as well as private companies that we also discussed, Sanofi, Novartis, and others are assisting in manufacturing. And so this is going to enable us to address many of the bottlenecks that we're currently, um, you know, witness to. And, and I just wanted to jump in and say, you know, you're, you make a really important point that, you know, at some point right now it's projected late spring that supply is going to um, exceed demand. That's going to set, come with its own set of challenges, right? Because, yes. you know, at some point we're going to need to... Um, try to combat some of the uh, vaccine hesitation. Correct. <laughs> so that that's going to be a big issue, but more, more on that uh, in the future. So 
I just wanted to talk a little bit about um, global, right? Mm -hmm. Global impact. So the world learned from the missteps in our response to uh, the H1N1 influenza pandemic in 2009 and established the Access to COVID-19 Tools, uh, ACT Act, Accelerator, to promote equitable access to vaccines, therapeutics, and diagnostics. However, many high-income countries already have bilateral agreements with manufacturers of COVID-19 vaccines. Um, There are agreements to access 2 billion doses of WHO pre-qualified vaccines during 2021. But this represents only 20% of the vaccine needs of participating countries. And, you know, let's lay it all out there. Um, Most low-income and middle-income countries are really struggling. They face major difficulties in accessing and deliver, delivering vaccines and therapeutics um, you know, to their populations. So COVAX will require decisive action by Gavi. And actually, Andrea, I think you wanted to talk more about that. Um, mm-hmm. But it's an international organization created in 2000 um, to improve access to new and underused vaccines for children living in the world's poorest countries. Um, so we need Gavi to work with the Vaccine Alliance, the World Health Organization, and the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation, CEPI, um, supported by the countries they serve, and with financing, of course, for vaccine purchasing to ensure that these countries, you know, in particular, these low-income and middle-income countries have equitable access to vaccines. So for 80% of the populations in these low and middle-income countries that will not benefit from COVAX-provided COVID-19 vaccines, they are in dire need of funding and support. There's a call to action right now for the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and others to lead an international initiative to mobilize support for these countries in need. Um, Currently, that has not happened. So we have all these barriers, and the barriers are obviously exacerbated in these low- and middle-income countries. So lack of infrastructure, lack of funding, no established platform for vaccinating the majority of their populations, cold chain requirements and the logistics of vaccine storage and deployment. And Um, I just want to jump in. And there's also countries that are obviously, you know, under civil unrest, political upheaval, you know, conflict. And and even just getting vaccine into their border is going to be a challenge. Right. And another thing worth mentioning is that we also need these low and middle income countries to participate in future vaccine trials, right? To to test the clinical effectiveness of of these different um, therapeutic agents to ensure that interventions and implementation are suitable for their local contexts. Yeah. So this is this is a crisis, you know, and and I there's certainly no easy answer to it, uh, but there's there is a call to action, and and we genuinely hope that uh, some of these matters are resolved. Um, Andrea, I think you wanted to talk a little bit more. Yeah, just just yeah. really briefly. So Gavi, which is Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, is a is a public private global health partnership, and the goal is really to increase access to immunization broadly, but but also. COVID-19 specific in poor countries. And so they're coordinating this COVAX initiative that Jess mentioned along with WHO and the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness. Um, And and the goal is to distribute 2 billion COVID-19 vaccine doses by the end of this year. Um, And the goal is focusing on pooled procurement and equitable distribution, particularly to underserved countries. And so, you know, they have a list of authorized vaccines according to WHO's requirements and focusing on, you know, getting stocks of those and being able to actually send those to countries. Now, as just mentioned, there are still going to be countries that are left out of the COVAX program. And so there are still challenges uh, to address distribution, supply, you know, financial aid to those countries around the world. But ultimately, you know, if we don't address vaccination on a global scale, it's going to be very challenging to stop this pandemic because this is a global pandemic. And thank you, Andrea. I think I actually referenced COVAX without defining it. So thank you so much for clarifying what that is. So again, we just want to, want to acknowledge um, the uh, the dire need to, to manage this inherent um, inequity, whereby, you know, higher income brackets, higher income countries 
are accessing COVID vaccines um, before those with, with less access uh, to, to private care, um, who may be at increased risk of severe disease and death. Um, such as older people, those with comorbid comorbidities. Um, you know, at the country level, of course, we just talked about low and middle income countries. Andrea, you pointed out that are affected by by things like war and civil conflict, economic crises, natural disasters, um, or those with large refugee populations or populations with special needs or vulnerabilities. Um, and they're going to need additional support for vaccines and, and vaccination under these really challenging operational conditions. All right. That was a lot, Andrew. It was a lot. It was a lot. But, um, you know, I hope you guys got a feel for kind of the multiple points of bottleneck and barriers. It's not... It's not a selfish, the companies don't want to share their recipes or things like that. Yes, there are proprietary things, but at this point, it's it's not really feasible for all of these other companies to scale up due to limitations and even things such as raw materials and physical equipment. So we hope this gives you a feel for supply chain, the, the pipeline of vaccine manufacturing and deployment, some of the challenges and some of the plans to address these challenges in getting the world vaccinated for COVID-19. Um, we may do a future episode focusing specifically on how a vaccine is actually made from kind of preclinical development through, but we really wanted to give a big picture overview of some of these, um, you know, the frustrations that everybody is, is experiencing and, and really what's going on underneath the hood. Um, so thanks for joining us today. We hope you learned a thing or two. And if you like our pod, please share with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Please also make sure to go check out our website at www.unbiasedscipod.com. Um, that's where we post all the links and infographics that are associated with every episode we discuss. You can also leave us a donation. Um, we do this all out of the goodness of our hearts. Um, and you can also pick up some Unbiased Science merch. Um, so next week, we're going to take a little break from COVID-19 and we're going to discuss health-related old wives tales and what the science actually says. We will, of course, continue to provide updates on COVID-19, vaccine process, deployment, uh, clinical trials, all that good stuff on our social media accounts. So be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist.